Hello friends, freaks, nerds and geeks, all those of you unabashedly burning in the ephemeral flames of existence right alongside me. I'm your host, Jay Van Veen, and you're listening to Why Did You Make Me Read This, your weekly comic book podcast. Politics. It's a charged word for a lot of people. It can bring about passion or disgust, energy or aggravation. For others, it's just a peripheral phenomenon that exists in the world. But whether you love, hate, or are indifferent about politics, there is probably one word that never comes up when you think about it. Comics. Politics and comics make for strange bedfellows, but the mixture of two elements usually existing at a distance from one another can result in some damn fine creations, particularly when you've got some heavyweight talent behind that mixing process. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Think about people you'd vote for. You want a reasonable person in office, right? Someone who's level-headed, but possesses some pizzazz and charisma. You want an intelligent person, and a person you feel as though you can trust. What about a superhero? Would you vote for a superhero? Someone with supernatural abilities? Take that hypothetical one step further. What about a person that had powers, and a world full of people without them? What about a fella that could literally talk to machines and make them obey his commands? If that guy existed in the real world, would you be willing, despite or because of that fact, to cast a vote his way? Could you trust a person with that ability? The implications behind what he may or may not be able to do are something that you would probably need to take under heavy consideration. What if that same superpowered citizen took up a misguided career as a masked vigilante in his past? literally flying around town with a jetpack and a costume, attempting to stop crimes and occasionally stirring up more shit than was originally started. And what if that same guy intervened in a national tragedy and saved the lives of hundreds of other people? Would that change your opinion? Today's comic is a political one, yes, but it also includes boilerplate comic book content like sci-fi ray guns, superhuman powers, and heroes saving the day as well as intrigues such as subversive artists, murder and explosions, behind-the-scene action of governmental positions, American race relations, more obscure historical facts and cultural references than you can shake a comic book at, and one man trying to do what he thinks is the right thing while all the various characters around him bust his chops at every turn. Do people still talk about busting chops? I always like that one. Today, we're going to be talking about fictional superpowered Mayor Mitchell Hundred as he tries to stop everything around him from taking a swan dive headfirst into the concrete as he tackles the nigh impossible task of keeping things running in the bustling metropolis that is New York City. Machina, The First Hundred Days, was written by Brian K. Vaughn, illustrated by Tony Harris, inked by Tom Feister, colored by J.D. Mettler, and lettered by Jared K. Fletcher. The story opens up on a splash page of a man in a jetpack flying in the sky, adorning a full body suit and mask and helmet, 
that looks like a cross between a dark-colored superhero costume and a tactical outfit worn by some paramilitary group member. Not only is he up in the skies, but he's seemingly flying headfirst into a commercial airliner heading straight down towards him. We don't get any narration, we don't get any dialogue, just a little bit of text giving us the dictionary definition of the Latin phrase Deus Ex Machina, which literally means God from the machine. The origins of that phrase are derived from Greek dramatists lowering actors down onto the stage, and it's become a way to denote a person or a force in a story that provides an improbable solution to an impossible situation. And that picture depicts a pivotal part of the history of the character. But before we jump into that, we should talk a little bit about the narrative formatting of this book. This comic jumps around time a lot, sometimes between just a year or two and sometimes between decades, and it does so frequently. We get a bit of a chronological patchwork of storytelling as we bounce between the character's present day that develops the plot and historically significant points in the past that lead things to take the shape they have in the here and now. Every few page turns, we're seeing how characters met, formative experiences, and even indefinite origins of the main character's superpowers. And speaking of characters, we should actually talk about the pretty rotund cast in this comic. Even this initial volume of the 50-some issue run series introduces us to a fair amount of people and moving parts. It's a comic that packs in a lot, but it all starts with and is centered around a man named Mitchell Hundred. Mitch is a New Yorker obsessed with his city. He became a civil engineer and was called to check upon a strange glowing occurrence under the Brooklyn Bridge. While underneath that bridge, he came across a strange bit of machinery, this glowing green contraption that looks kind of like if Buck Rogers had built a cassette player in some steampunk alternative world 1980s. Does that help you imagine it? It fucking should. I nailed that shit. <laughs> anyway. anyway, Mitch picks it up and the thing blows up right in his hands, tearing apart the left side of his face, and for some reason, giving him an extraordinary ability. Mitch's face ends up healing with some strange green scars that look like alien electronics running through his skin, and he is gifted or cursed with the ability to hear and talk to machines. From guns, to padlocks, to radios and phones, to trains and cars, and even the lights in his house, Mitch can communicate and dictate commands to machinery. And when he does, the scars on his face glow a little bit brighter, and his voice balloon switches from the traditional black font to a bright green blocky one. Now Mitch, he doesn't look like an alien. The scarring is actually pretty minimal. He's a handsome white guy in his mid-thirties with brown hair who wears nice suits and has oddly bright green eyes and can talk to machinery, okay? That's our man, Mitch. Mitchell Hundred. Mayor Hundred. His Honor. The Great Machine. Wait, what was that last one? Okay, so after Mitch developed his powers, he went on a brief and perhaps misguided crusade, taking it upon himself to become a vigilante for New York City. On top of the green added to his countenance and the extraordinary ability to communicate with machines, Mitch also started having bizarre dreams that gave him instructions. In a half-asleep, hypnagogic state, Mitch used these blueprints to build some of his own machinery. Most importantly, this sci-fi-looking stun gun, and a goddamn jetpack. Mitch completed his ensemble by putting on some leather and some armor and the superhero-looking helmet with some big goggles and a mask that covers his identity 
and he flew around New York under the alias The Great Machine, fighting crime and helping people. Or at least trying to do that. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. The important thing to know is, Mitch didn't do this alone. Like I said, there's a lot of characters in this comic, and there's two that are the closest to Mitch and the Great Machine. There's Kremlin, an older Russian immigrant that Mitchell has known since he was a child, and Bradbury, a big ex-military goofball tough guy who was the cop that escorted Mitch out to the Brooklyn Bridge that fateful night he got his superpowers and who has subsequently become kind of his best friend. These two were the great machine's left and right hands. They helped Mitch come up with plans and build his machines. They provided safeguards and moral support. They were, as Mitch said himself, the heart and the brain of the great machine. Bradbury was not the brain. He's kind of an idiot, and also my favorite character in this series. More characters. There's Journal, the pretty young new girl that is working as Mitch's intern. There's Deputy Commissioner Wiley, the Democratic strategist with cool dreadlocks and terrible suits, whom Mitch talked into joining his independent candidacy. There's Police Commissioner Angadi, a woman who just barely tolerates Mayor Hundred and who takes no shit off anyone. And Trista Braving, a talented young bohemian type who has rose to some critical fanfare on account of her artwork, but makes a controversial decision in her new piece that's revealed over the course of this comic. And speaking of artwork, I got them segues, son. Let's take the opportunity to head down the creative team turnpike. And if you want to punch me in the jaw for employing such a turn of phrase, I'll be waiting on my lawn, blindfolded, and ready for what I deserve. But as for the artwork, Tony Harris's style is an interesting one. He uses models to pose for every panel, I think, so anatomical composition is on point. But the art here has this strange effect of seeming like it's almost superimposed onto the page. Characters' expressions are often exaggerated, adding a bit of a cartoon quality to the overall product. And there's a bit of, God forgive me for saying this, feng shui to his pages. Things seem to flow in this geometrical pattern that's pleasing to the eye and also makes each panel seem to run in the exact way it's supposed to. And while that might be a vague bit of possible cultural appropriation, what I mean to say is that it has this inherent quality of pencils emanating out, guided by a hand that understands exactly where they're supposed to go. And the whole thing is made more distinct by J.D. Mettler's coloring choices, often shading characters' faces with multiple tones that create contrast over their expressions, never shying away from employing darker tones, cutting in this beige accent to almost everything that makes the comic book feel steeped in the past. I once gave an older friend this comic to read because I thought he'd connect more with the mature quality of the book and the political drama-esque dialogue, but all he could talk about when he returned it was the artwork. Comics didn't look like this when I was a kid, he remarked. It's incredible. And it is. And I'm not trying to say that the writing here isn't something exceptional as well. Everyone who has ever read a Brian K. Vaughn comic understands that the man is talented. The writer has a distinct voice and a wild imagination. But his ability for compelling dialogue and unique narrative telling are fully on display here. Honestly, I think this might be his most underrated book. This and Paper Girls. Well, Paper Girls actually ended up getting a fair amount of fanfare. So this, yes. It's this. This is his most underrated. I have spoken. The story weaves through temporal points as we see Mitch as the mayor of New York City fighting crime as the great machine, meeting other characters for the first time, and even giving us a glimpse 
of his childhood. The story itself plays on a few different levels. Yes, we have the day-to-day headaches and the fires that need to be put out inside of the political system. There is some Alan Sorkin-adjacent moments as Mitch navigates his present-day working life in City Hall. But there's also a murder mystery plot developing as the story progresses. There's an unprecedented snowstorm happening in NYC, and someone is out there killing snowplow drivers. One is shot in the head. Another one has his truck blown up. Is it the mob? Is it terrorism? Is it an old friend that's become disgruntled since the dissolvement of the great machine? I'm looking at you, Kremlin. And as the entanglement wraps around the city's collective consciousness and raises Mitch's stress and suspicions, things are made worse by Trista Braving, the young artist who has submitted some controversial artwork to the municipally sponsored exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum of Art. So, while the snow brings the city to a grinding halt and the snowplow drivers are going on strike for fear of their lives, People are still getting pissed and turning out in droves to protest this piece of art, if you can actually call it that. The work in question is a large-scale portrait of the great emancipator himself, the president best known for ending slavery in America. Old Honest Abe Lincoln is on display with big, bright, red letters running across him, spelling out the N-word. And remember how I said that this was a government-funded exhibition? That's not going to go over well, is it? And in the scene where Mayor Hundred and Deputy Mayor Wiley head to the Brooklyn Museum of Art just to see what's causing all the controversy, we get some interesting dialogue. The artist. Is she... Hundred stops himself. Is she what, Mr. Mayor? Asks the curator, a woman who doesn't like it when art's integrity is called into question. Is she black? Wiley, a black man himself, finishes the question. I don't see how that's relevant, the curator responds. It's relevant because of that word, explains Wiley. That word is all about context. Context, like the race of the person behind it. So you have to be part of a select group to use a certain noun, the curator responds again. I think creators of all colors have a responsibility to appropriate taboo phrases from hate mongers. Oh, fuck chimes in Mayor Hundred. That means she is white. So it's an interesting bit of social commentary to include in a sci-fi graphic novel, and it's also a bit risky to play with, having a racially charged controversy in your story that could potentially fall backwards on the creators, who are both white. This was written in 2004, which seems like a million years ago, and I wonder if they had written this now in the current cultural climate of our society. I wonder if they'd still choose to include this aspect of the comic. I don't really know. We could probably spend a long time dissecting that, but I think I am not the right guy to lead anyone through this particular conversation, you know? Anyway, moving on. The comic hits its crescendo as Hundred starts dialing in on Kremlin, who seems to be getting more and more upset that the great machine was retired, and Mitch has entered mainstream politics. He breaks into Gracie Mansion at one point, where the mayor sleeps, to plead with Mitch to bring back the great machine. And he's also been eavesdropping on Mitch with some of his own devices. And the apex of the conflict comes when Mitch is certain that Kremlin is the one killing the snowplow drivers, an effort to coax the vigilante out of retirement. And Mitch and Bradbury go to Coney Island to confront the Russian. And I don't want to spoil the exact reveal, I just implore you to pick up this trade paperback and read it for yourself. 
A couple of my other favorite scenes, uh, one is a flashback where Hundred attempts to create a connection between the Great Machine and NYPD, but he can't get the commissioner, Commissioner Ngati, on the phone. So he has the bright idea of flying in with his jetpack and snatching her up off the street, landing them both on a rooftop a block or so away. He starts going into his spiel about why they should work together, and she instantly comes out with her baton, smashing him right in his helmeted head and threatening to arm her officers with bows and arrows and orders to shoot on sight. Another great machine memory we get is when two teenage boys are riding on top of the elevated train, doing dumb and dangerous shit for fun, as teenage boys are inclined to do, and Mitch flies in to intervene and get them off the train. But the sight of some jackass in a jetpack and some crazy get-up obviously startles the kids and one of them falls backwards off the speeding train. The great machine flies down to save the kid and he ends up breaking the kid's arm as he grabs him mid-fall because the guy really doesn't know what he's doing. Now that I'm thinking about it, pretty much all of the scenes we get of Mitch's time as the great machine are of him just generally fucking things up and getting in the way. But there is one absolute time where he saved the day. In this fictional version of America, there still remains one of the two towers in New York City. Because in their world, on that day in September, the great machine was able to intervene, to stop a plane, to save lives, and to become a hero. And remember, this comic came out just three years after the attack on New York happened. Bond really doesn't shy away from throwing things into the mix, and it usually works out for him. So we're getting close to the end of this episode, and I feel like I really haven't even scratched the surface of this damn thing. The true intent behind the artist and her controversial painting, who was killing the snowplow drivers and why, the hilarious dialogue that ever emanates out of the mouth of Bradbury, all the scenes of relationships, origins, and great machine misadventures, and the obscure facts Vaughn likes to pepper into all his works. Did you know that one time Mayor LaGuardia read Dick Tracy comic books over the radio to the city's kids because there was a newspaper strike going on? Or that the basement of the NYC City Hall used to be a jail? Well, now you know that, because I told you. And I only know that because of this comic book. It's what you get from Brian K. Vaughn. For a long time, this was another go-to comic for me. Not so much go-to as in I read it and reread it constantly like I did with some of my other comics but go-to for when I was trying to consciously change the mind of a comic book skeptic. My mom, an old boss, an elderly sibling, even some of my own friends. I pulled this comic book out and implored them to read it as I was trying to diminish their preconceptions of what comic books contained. I'd often bang the drum that comics and superhero stories are not synonyms, but here I was taking a different approach. Yes, this story has a superhero in it. No, he isn't some invincible, infallible paragon of a protagonist. He's a complicated guy who makes mistakes and loses his temper and puts down the costume of a hero and puts on the suit of a politician. It's not all heroic punches and standing over the conquered villains. It's an intricate tale of people's lives. Here we have the combined world of politics and vigilantism. We go through the nooks and crannies of City Hall, and the nuances of navigating personal lives and public perception are on full display. It's an intelligent book. It can be a little slow in places, but that slowness burns, particularly in the long run, as this is only the first five issues of a 50-plus issue run. It's like the first season of a show, where it introduces you to a lot of characters and moving parts of a plot, 
and then it jumps in time covering different points of the chronology of those characters, and it increases the complexity of everything. But not in a bad way, in an interesting way, in a compelling way, and in a fun comic book way. This book is outside the box for even your non-superhero stories. Like I said up top, comics and politics are a peculiar pairing. There's a lot that could go wrong, and the potential for boredom runs a higher risk were it to be handled the wrong way. Thankfully, Brian K. Vaughn and Tony Harris were the creators here. So we know it wasn't. Hey guys, just a reminder here, this is part one of two-part coverage for Ex Machina, The First Hundred Days. Next week, I'll be joined by my good buddy Jeff Haney, an interesting, talented musician, author, movie maker. He has a ton of stuff to say, and it's definitely going to be worth your while. Why Did You Make Me Read This was written, recorded, and edited by me, Jay Van Veen. If you want to support the show, please just share it on social media or give me a good rating on one of the podcast apps. If you want to follow me on social media, just hit up at Why Did You Comics on Twitter or just search the name of the show on Facebook. I know everybody out there has busy and complex lives, and I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this goofball talk about some comic books. It means a lot. Thanks, and as always, we'll see you next week. <laughs>